Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about what every good lawyer wants you to know. You know, my day job, um, when I'm not on television or writing books or giving talks um, or seeing patients, um, my day job is as a forensic psychiatrist. And so I get lots of calls from people. Um, looking for forensic psychiatrists. I mean, sometimes the calls are from lawyers, but sometimes they're from people all over the country. And um, they have lots of questions. Uh, First of all, for some people, it's hard for them to find a lawyer. They seem to have a really good case, and yet, for some reason, they are having trouble finding a lawyer to take it. And then other people... um, just don't know even if they have a case. There are all these kinds of questions. And then, of course, once I'm on a case, uh, retained as a psychiatric expert witness, um, then, you know, and I talk with the people, the plaintiffs, or whoever, and that doesn't, not just plaintiffs, defense also, but I mean the people involved in the case, um, people who aren't lawyers, let's put it that way, they always, even through the process, have lots of questions and doubts and everybody gets paranoid. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, so I thought uh, it would be a good idea to have an attorney come on who wrote a book, strangely enough, <laughs> called What Every Good Lawyer Wants You to Know, An Insider's Guide on How to Reduce Stress, Reduce Costs, and get the most from your lawyer. Those are the three things that everybody who is contemplating filing a lawsuit wants to know, or for that matter, if someone has been served uh, with a lawsuit, a defendant, they want to know the same thing. Because lawsuits can be very, they are very stressful and very expensive, and nobody ever is happy that thinking that they got the most from their lawyer. Nobody ever thinks they got the most from their lawyer. They're never happy, even when they, won, when they win a ton of money. So, um, so that is how I came to invite Francine Tone to be the guest today, because that's the name of her book. But while I was um, reading other things about her, I found out some other interesting things um, well, let me let me first introduce who she is, the, the basic things, and then I'll tell you the other interesting things. Um, she is a, a a lawyer, obviously, and she um, is is particularly an appeals right now. She is particularly an appeals lawyer, and uh, but she's been practicing for many years. And with and she practices with her husband, um, which is probably not easy. Uh, she's also been a judge pro tem. She is an, an appellate law specialist, a certified appellate law specialist. And as I was saying, that's what she focuses on now. But she also has does a lot of other things. Um, she has had a life-altering crisis that involved her only son, which got her on an interesting track where she now also helps people get off the hamster wheel to, uh, instead of just juggling their life and holding on and burning out, uh, 
they now can actually um, make more time, and she's proof that her strategies work, because I think we're calling her in Hawaii now, and she lives in California, and she is a um, scuba dive master, she's a stand-up paddle boarder, she's a certified professional skier, in addition to all these credentials that I just told you about as far as being a lawyer and an author. So, um, Francine, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be on your show. I'd like to talk about these three different things, really. First of all, um, of what changed your life in terms of what, what life-changing event changed your life so that you went on to the, your next book, which is related to um, helping people get off the hamster wheel. And then, of course, um, the, what, your, what this book is about, um, what every good lawyer wants you to know. So why don't we start with who you are, your life, your um, life-changing event, and then talk about some of the things that you think are most important from your book, what people need to know um, about finding a lawyer, and you know what, what all the the um, the things that you mentioned and that I just mentioned, um, and then we can talk a little bit about your strategies for helping people get off the hamster wheel. So let's start with who you are and your life and how you why you became a lawyer and why you then. Um, switched in some ways or branched in some ways to become a strategist. Uh, okay, well, I'll start with why I became a lawyer. Um, I, you mentioned my son's accident, which I'll get to a little later, but the why I became a lawyer actually stems from another trauma that I had as a child. I um, just take you back a little short story. I was five years old. I'm living in Japan. My mother is Japanese. My father is an American military man, Caucasian. And I'm playing outside. It's one of those hot, humid summer nights. Mosquitoes are buzzing, and there's a smell of DDT in the air. And my friends start running around me, screaming and chanting, your mother is dead, your mother is dead, your mother is dead. And I ran home. To the, yeah, I ran home and got, ran into the kitchen where my mother was fixing dinner, crying, and she says, what's wrong? And I tell her, they're saying you're dead. Well, that evening, my parents sat me down and told me the truth. It turns out my mother was dead. She died when I was only one years old, and my American military Caucasian father left me with my Japanese grandmother, never to return. And at the age of five, this couple who sat before me adopted me, and huh. uh, that night, they, yeah, and that night they spent a long time telling me how special I was because I was selected, I was, um, you know, chosen. So I went to bed feeling pretty special that night. But a few weeks later, um, I guess you could say I found out how special I really was when my adopted father came into my room at night. I hadn't quite fallen asleep and started touching me in ways that I did not understand, and that was my life until I was 20 years old. But um, I came to the U.S. the first time when I was eight. And I think what saved oh, wait, me, in fact, wait, I know wait, what wait, saved wait, wait, wait a second. Yeah. What do you mean that was your life until you were 20 years old? What do you mean? That he kept abusing you? What, what, what was until you yes. were 20? Yeah. So until I was 20, that was when I left home for good. And until huh. that time, I never knew on a given night if he was going to come into my room or not. Except for the two years when he was stationed in Vietnam, those were two years of freedom that I had. So yeah, it was it 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 was a a tough life, you know. And and I look back and think 
how come I didn't become a drug addict or alcoholic or something like a lot of young girls would have done in that situation. And when I was eight, I came to the U.S. and I began watching, you know, American TV for the first time. And I started watching the Perry Mason show, which most people know about that, that show. And every week yes. people would come to him, you know, at accused of murder and they would come to him and basically say you're the only one I can turn to you're the only one I can trust and I had nobody in my life that I could trust not even my mother because she wasn't effective in that way and I found out much later in life when I became a lawyer when I was reading my book on a book on battered women that she had all the symptoms of a battered woman Uh, I just didn't see the uh, physical abuse but she exhibited all the signs so she wasn't helpful in my situation but Perry Mason uh-huh. was saving everybody. So I started trusting Perry Mason, this fictitious. That was my mentor. Yeah. And eventually I decided I want to grow up to be a lawyer. I want to grow up to be Perry Mason for my clients. Like if I didn't have anyone to trust, it was a horrible feeling. I didn't want other people to feel that way. And that's why I became a lawyer. Uh-huh. Having, someone, having someone to trust was, to me was so important. It's, to live life without that yeah. just seemed so scary. Yes. Yeah. Can we go back for a second to how sure. did these kids, what made these kids, um, how did they know, like, what made them suddenly come around and start singing to you, your, your mother is dead? Like, who told them? What, is, what were they basing well, that on? They were, their parents told them. So we were living in Japan on a military base, and they were the, the family across the street from where I was living. And the parents knew that my parents were adopting a girl. And they had told them that my mother had died, my father had abandoned me. And those parents told their children, because I was introduced to them. All of a sudden, a five-year-old girl shows up. And, I, you know, they apparently told the kids that the whole story. And this is five, six, seven-year-old kids. Wow. So that's how I found out. Oh, wow. What a way. Um, Um. Did you ever, have you ever tried to look for your biological father since once yes. you became a lawyer? Yes, yeah. I did. Actually, when my um, adoptive parents passed away, my adoptive mother passed away um, from cancer, and then my adoptive father remarried. And, you know, even, even though all those years I was free from him, as long as he was alive, there was this kind of cloud or monkey on my back. And when he passed away, all of a sudden, everything that I had kind of kept nice and neatly in a compartment in my brain just started spilling out. And Uh so I did go, I saw, I went to see a therapist and basically what I learned was that the abandonment issues of being my mother dying, my father abandoning me, then my grandmother putting me up for adoption, even though I don't know the details of that at that time, it's like people were leaving my life. And we talked about the fact that that abandonment was probably more of a trauma than the molest because of, uh-huh. of it happening so young. And um, so, yeah, she suggested I try to find my father, and I did find him. And he was living in Japan. I, I hired a private detective, and they got me all this information. And it was one of those um, Thanksgiving nights. Everybody had gone to sleep, and I was thinking about him because I had a phone number, and I had put it neatly in a drawer and that night, I washed all my dishes, everything, and I kept checking on the kitchen, and I was just like, no, I'm not going to call. I'm not going to do this. And I was going up, getting ready to go up the stairs, and I peeked into my office, and I saw the phone, and 
I sat down, pulled the number, and I sat there for like an hour trying to decide, do I call, do I not call? I finally called. And the Japanese woman um, answered the phone. He's remarried. And um, I had written words out in Japanese so that I could communicate in case somebody answered the mm. phone and spoke Japanese. And um, she uh-huh. indicated that he wasn't, he wasn't there. And I asked if I could leave my number, and I did. And then we hung up. And 15 seconds later, my biological father calls me. And we spoke oh, for wow. well over an hour. And he was so gracious. He was so kind. And I asked him if I could come visit him in Japan. And he says, why wouldn't yeah. you? And I was so excited. So my husband and I went to Japan, and I did meet him. And um, my my meeting, the first time I met him, I could just see it in his face. His face lit up. I lit up. And we started talking as if we'd known each other for years and catching oh, wow. up. And he was telling me stories and I was, you know, telling him about my life. He was telling me about his life. But at the same time, his wife, who's Japanese, was sitting there, who speaks fluent English, was not, did not have a look of happiness on her face. <laughs> and right. um, I was there for, you know, and I was there for 10 days and I made it really clear, you know, that, you know, I had a, I did have a good life and I wasn't there to alter his life, but I would really love to have a connection, even if it was just yes. as friends. And when I left yes. Japan, um, he gave me this, the last time I met him, he gave me this amazing hug and like a real father would. And um, uh-huh. I'm sorry, this brings tears to my eyes because it was such yes. a touching moment. And uh, when I got home, I, you know, we were, we'd been exchanging emails and uh, I, I sent him an email saying, you know, how much, how grateful I was to have met him and made that connection. Yeah. And I was going to plan on coming back to Japan later that year and would love to see him again. And I got an mm-hmm. email back and I could tell it wasn't written by him because it was written by this like broken English that it was written in telling me that, uh-huh. um, go live your life. Don't come back. You, you know, you're a danger oh, to wow. us. <laughs> All these horrible things. And I remember bawling my eyes out um, because I thought, thought, finally, I found my father. And even if it meant just talking to him once a year, you know, um, that would be great. Yeah. And that was yeah. in 2005. And he was 80 years old. And um, I oh. never got another response from my email. I've written letters. And they just cut off communication and I don't believe it was him uh, but he's you know 80 and, and right. his wife does take care of him so I've come mm. to terms with that <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah I'm sure it wasn't him oh well I mean it's a it's sort of a bittersweet story it's a beautiful story that you got that hug and that you found him and and um yeah and did, did he apologize at all? I mean, I know you weren't asking him to apologize, but or did he give some kind of explanation of why he uh, abandoned you? Um, in, a, in a roundabout way, he didn't really get very specific about it because my mother's family, my grandmother, um, I had aunts and uncles, and they took care of me. And I was connecting. I was also reaching out to them to reconnect with my real mother's family. And he intimated, just very, just kind of round the bush, that it was a rift between him and my mother's family. And 
Uh-huh. So I, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't get into details because I didn't want to taint my connection with him because that was uh-huh. all history. Uh-huh. It didn't matter anymore. Right. <laughs> and when right, I did connect right. with my, my mother's family, I asked a little bit more of my uncle about that. And all he did was shake mm-hmm. his head and say, your father um, was irresponsible. And that was all he would give me. Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. really know exactly what happened, but it sounds like both my father and my mother's family have maybe different points of view about what may have happened. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. so I just uh-huh. let that go. <laughs> it is what it is. Oh, my goodness. What an interesting. Wow. And you, I mean, it's amazing how uh, wonderfully successful you are, you know, from one book to the next, and, of course, all your work as a lawyer. Well, then, okay, <laughs> Then what was the trauma or traumatic event with your son, life-changing event with your son? Oh, my, my little boy, yeah, this is my only son. I'm, my husband and I, were, this is a second marriage. I have two stepsons from him who are older, but this was my baby. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, he, he had gone to the Air Force Academy. He had graduated. He was a pilot, and he was an instructor pilot getting ready to move on to being a fighter pilot. And um, when he was young, we, we and my husband and I started skiing right before we got married, and we introduced it to the kids, and my son was an avid skier. And his dream vacation was coming up, which was three weeks in New Zealand with um, a coach who, who coaches the uh, Olympics, Olympians, um, and their mogul skiing, you know, the bumps. And uh, he was going there for a three-week camp for vacation, and he was in New Zealand. And um, I got that call on that uh, Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, the one that no mother wants, but they're always always fearing. And um, I, I was sitting on my porch, and the phone rang, and, and I said, you need to answer the phone. And my husband goes, no, nah, just let it ring, because we often let our, phone, <laughs> our home phone ring. And uh-huh. I went, no, you need to answer that phone. It was just a feeling. I was just like, we need to answer that phone right now. And he comes uh-huh. out, and he goes, there's a woman from New Zealand and I know there's only one person in New Zealand that I know. It's my son. And I get on the phone, and she tells me there's been an accident. He was found unconscious at the bottom of a ski hill in New Zealand. And he had already been put on a helicopter, and she didn't know if he was alive or dead. And uh, mm. so I flew to New Zealand as fast as I could. I get there, and the doctors tell me he's in a coma, and they tell me he's going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. Oh, and I remember just kind of like in a daze listening to that, and I just kind of went, okay. And I went and sat, at that moment, I went and sat down next to him and started talking to him. And I held his hand, talked to him, and the nurses were amazing, supportive nurses. And the doctors, like for a couple of days, are watching me and pulled me aside and said, you need to address and face reality that he's going to be a vegetable the rest of oh. your life, his life. You need to start making preparations. And I was fighting them. I'm going, I, I, I understand what your prognosis is, but I'm, I, I'll get there later. And they go, no, you need to see his CAT scan. So they pull me in to look at his CAT scan. And I'm looking at it, and I look at them, and I'm going, I don't see what the problem is. And they said, white is bad. White on a CAT scan means all those brain cells have been irrevocably damaged. They're gone. They're destroyed. And I look back up, and it's all white. And oh, wow. I nod my head. And I go, okay, I understand. Uh, and they said, so you, they just wanted me to prepare. And, and I said, you know, finally, I said, you know, I'm not going to give up at the beginning of the journey. If nothing has changed in two, three years, 
I'll consider that. But right now, I'm not going to give up. I don't care what your prognosis right. is. And yeah. every day, I'm, I'm holding his hand. And finally, right, about, right after that, I said, you know, I think he's waking up. No, 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 he's not waking up. No, I think he is. And my son has this um, cute little ability of being able to raise one eyebrow at a time. And I know that with uh, patients in coma, squeezing the hand can be just a reflex. So I wasn't going by squeezing the hand. So when I'm talking to him, and I swear he was waking up. So I started asking him questions, and I told him, lift your left eyebrow for no and your right eyebrow Uh for yes. And I started Uh asking him questions that would be yes, like his name, where he went to school, and his mother's Uh name, things like that. And then I started asking asking questions that would be a clear no and he was raising the correct eyebrow and oh, wow. I'm, I'm, raising, yeah. I'm swinging my hand you know get the attention of the doctor he's waking up he's waking up and uh, they resisted me but he was waking up and uh, it took us a long time we were in New Zealand for three weeks and when we came back from New Zealand he was still in this semi-comatose state with like little waking up periods and uh the uh, Air Force flew him back to the Palo Alto VA Hospital, which is the brain injury rehab unit. And um, the next day after he arrived there, I come in. He's sitting up in a wheelchair talking. He's, so oh, I, I look wow. at him and go, okay, not a vegetable, check. What's the next step? <laughs> and, it, oh. and I think it was the helping him recover. And there was a lot of... As soon as we found out about the brain injury, my husband and I started reading, and he was reading while I was in New Zealand and giving me reports, all these new studies that were coming out about the brain and how remarkable the Uh brain was in repairing itself. Uh And so I operated under under that assumption that the brain could magically repair itself, and it did. It took 10 years, but my son's fully recovered, and he'll never fly again. But he's fully recovered. He just spent uh, six and a half years in Europe as a strategic military planner for the U.S. Air Force Command, oh. Europe and Africa. And oh my God! He's going, <laughs> yeah, and he's going back to Europe again um, for another position that they've offered him uh, for another who knows how long. But he's fully recovered. Um, you know, he's he's got bad knees from the accident, and he's got a little. Um, double vision still, but it keeps changing still. But other than that, uh, cognitively, he's, it's kind of scary because I think he's smarter than he was before the injury. <laughs> <laughs> Not to do him. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that is, an, that's, you know, it's amazing. And, you know, that kind of dovetails into um, lawyer stuff. <laughs> um, you know, if people... I mean, that would have been, if, do you think, um, if you, I know this is New Zealand, but do you think if you hadn't been a lawyer, I know you're, you know, you're not licensed to practice in New Zealand, but do you think if you hadn't been a lawyer that you would have been able to get them to um, keep him on life support and continue taking care of him? Because the point, weren't they making the point that he's going to be, he is a vegetable and we don't, we want you to take him home, you know, he's, um, uh, you have to get him out of here. This is costing too much money. You know, I think it was more that I was a tiger mom um, than a lawyer. Uh-huh. That I was not, I wasn't, I wasn't going to take negative 
um, with the, lying down, negative information lying down. And, and I think it was the tenacity that I had developed from the time I was, you know, a child, five years old, surviving. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, even back, mm-hmm. even before I saw Perry Mason, one of the things that I did learn during when I was a child at five years old and my father began molesting me was during the daytime and when he was gone, I realized it was my time that I could focus on something. And, and one of the stories that I've written in a compilation book is called Monkey Bars because as a child at five, I'd go to the playground and I, did, I was determined to be the best at the monkey bars, better than the boys. And I was because I would just focus on doing things on the monkey bars. And that kind of persistence and tenacity stayed with me my whole life. So when my son uh-huh. was injured and they're telling me all these things, it's like, no, now's not the time to give up. Now's the time to focus and do whatever it takes uh, to uh-huh. make him be the best. And I knew in the back of my head that, you know, in my brain that I'm thinking, yeah, there's a possibility that no matter what I do, maybe it won't change. But if I give up, I'm guaranteed nothing's going to change. So right, I think right. that was more of that tenacity that I had up to that point and my ability to just focus. Um, some people say, used to accuse me of being obsessive compulsive, having obsessive compulsive disorder. And I told them, I said, no, I'm not OCD. I just know how to focus really well. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's what really was more of it. And then, then uh-huh. once I came back to the States, there I was having well, some wait, issues I with... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Once you came back, oh, that's when you started having issues with the with the hospital that they put him in. You mean? Right, with the hospital and also with the military, and that's where my lawyer brain kicked in. Uh, and went, no, 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 uh-huh. we're not we're not going to go down that road yet. And uh-huh. um, all right, you know, well, that's, we need yeah. to take a break. We need to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk more about your lawyer brain. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> My guest is um, Francine Tone. Her book is called What Every Good Lawyer Wants You to Know, An Insider's Guide on How to Reduce Stress, Reduce Costs, and Get the Most from Your Lawyer. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today, my guest is Francine Tone. She is an attorney. Um, she is also the author of this new book called What Every Good Lawyer Wants You to Know, an insider's guide on how to reduce stress, reduce costs, and get the most from your lawyer. And uh, that was such a fascinating, well, <laughs> I, I, first of all, I want to say how much I admire you for having um, survived and done such incredible things with your life after such a traumatic beginning. Um, and watching P- Perry Mason, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> I used to watch Perry Mason, too. And, um, and I mean, I think that might have, I'm sure that played somewhat of a role in my becoming a forensic psychiatrist. So, so now why don't we get to your book and, and what it is, um, what you advise people uh, in terms of, first of all, figuring out, like I get a lot of people calling me who say, who tell me their story, and then they say, I don't know, should I um, find a lawyer? I'm having trouble finding a lawyer. I don't know if I have a good case. What would you tell people about that, like how to know whether they do need a lawyer? Yeah, that's a tough one because until they actually speak to a lawyer, um, you know, it's really impossible to tell if they have a case or not. And many times people feel as if they've been wronged because their feelings are, they feel like their feelings have been hurt so gravely, but the other person, there's such like legal technicalities sometimes about ha- having to hold somebody else responsible for something that's been done. And the law looks at it a little differently than the rest of us do. And you know, oftentimes I, I see situations where if somebody feels like they've been injured, somebody else should pay. And that's not always the case because sometimes it's just an accident and, and it's not anybody's fault from a legal point of view. But unless you actually lay your facts out to a lawyer, then it's hard to know whether you have a case or not. So the first thing is you have to find a lawyer that's willing to listen to you. Uh, there's, we do have a bit of a problem in, in California. Uh, I don't know if, if it's such a problem in other states is that many people can't find lawyers that are affordable. So there are many, many people today, more so than there were 10 years ago, who are representing themselves in the legal system. And as a result of that, the court system is trying to accommodate them as self-represented litigants. But as a self-represented litigant, it's just a treacherous road to go down in litigation or trying to hold somebody responsible because uh, it, it does get very complicated. 
and people don't know what the legal terminology is. One of the things I included in my book was a glossary of a lot of the terminology, like plaintiff, defendant, court reporter, courts, judges, uh, just some of the words that people are unfamiliar with, just a definition of what that means so they can get kind of a framework of how, you know, who are the players and what are the words you use in the legal system. Uh, but I think if somebody has like, you know, do I have a case or not? You, every case is so different that they need to, I wish there was a hotline for lawyers to answer. And I know there are some people trying to create those kind of uh, setup, uh-huh. but... You know, but the problem is this, is that oftentimes, and I found this with clients often, and when clients came to me, I would listen to their story, and it would, I would have to ask a lot of questions to pull out all the information that I need to make an assessment. And it was through my listening and questioning that I could get to the heart of the problem and know whether or not they had a real case, a questionable case, or a, a decent case, a good case. So when people tell their story to somebody who's not an attorney and they're not asking all the right questions, it's difficult to tell if they have a case. So mm-hmm. in my book, I've got a whole section on how do you find a lawyer and how do you find a lawyer, you know, and, and I would say the best way to find a lawyer is through a referral, a referral system. It's just like, uh, I think I've mentioned in the book, like if I'm looking for a plumber, I don't look in, I don't look online first. I ask people who've used plumbers. And say, who do you know that's mm-hmm. good? And it might take me a while to find a good plumber. But people want to get that lawyer quickly, but actually to find the lawyer that suits you might take a little bit of time and to go from uh-huh. a referral basis. So the whole, my book has a whole section on how do you get a referral to a lawyer? So let's say you've got an injury case. You've been hit in a car accident or something. And you know somebody who has a real estate attorney, but they say, oh, he's really good. That's a referral of a lawyer. That real estate attorney can then refer you to somebody who is an injury lawyer or refer you to somebody who knows injury lawyers. And it might take a few iterations of this to, to come down to finding that good lawyer. And so it, it does take some mm-hmm. effort. It's, it's unfortunate, but it does because anything you find on the Internet is just advertising. You know, I can right. put anything on the website, right? So it's, it's um, you can't tell quality from, from a website. Yes, and then, of course, depending upon the case, um, I mean, yes, and then people don't understand about, like, uh, statutes of limitations or things. Right. I mean, when, when someone calls me who um, doesn't have a lawyer, um, and... And I always send them off to find one because mm-hmm. I don't want to be—I don't want to take their money as an expert witness if they don't have a lawyer because I know chances are they're not going to win. They're just going to be—you know—if they are representing right. themselves. Um, I mean, the other the, the lawyer on the other side is going to just run rings around them. So yes. it's like a waste of money to um, start paying. And and people don't get it, how complicated it is. You know, I mean, yes, if they don't have the money, there's no way of getting the money to, to pay a lawyer. Um, of course, there is, uh, um, what do you call it, the, uh, what do you the call it, legal aid. Um, oh, legal aid, right. Uh, well, mm-hmm. but and legal and contingency fees, right. Why don't you explain a little bit about that? 
Okay, so contingency fee, in some cases, it's illegal to use one, but in, like, injury cases, it's the common way. Basically, um, an attorney works for you, and you don't pay them any money up front. And when they win the case, they take a percentage of the award or the settlement award. And that can get a little tricky, too, because uh, I've, I've heard people say, oh, my gosh, my lawyer got $100,000 for me, but, but I only saw $10,000. And, and that, that happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I go, what happened? So when I, it's a negotiating your fee agreement. You need to know what, before you sign, how is that percentage calculated? So, for instance, I've seen fee agreements from lawyers that would say that they take their fee first, then medical expenses are paid, then you get what's left over. So that mm-hmm. the lawyer's percentage is now being calculated on the largest amount of money. And mm-hmm. as opposed to other, like I've had a couple of um, people come to me who are um, had injury cases and I didn't, I don't handle injury cases. And so I referred them to lawyers and a good injury lawyer will say, here's your, here's a contract. Go have some other lawyer look at this contract to make sure that, that they can advise you to sign it. And I've told people that mm. have come to me, you know, go do that and I'll go, I'll look at your contract just so that without charging uh-huh. you, just so that you get someone to look at it. And um, I've told them, okay, this, this contract is written so that they get their percentage off the top. Ask them if they'll negotiate and say they get their percentage off after the medical expenses are paid. They come off the top. All the costs are paid. Then whatever's left, they get a percentage of that, which reduces mm-hmm. the lawyer's cut, mm-hmm. but it actually leaves more money for you at the end. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you have to be aware of that, you know, going in. And I think that even fee agreements can be very intimidating. They're long and tiny print. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's yes. so much in yes. there that people read it and they're, you know, they get glossy eyed as they read even the fee agreement. So it's, it's understanding. You have to understand what is the, assume for a moment that you get $100,000 if you just look at this agreement, how much is the lawyer going to get? Is it going to be before or after expenses and costs are paid? Right. That's a very important point. And people usually, when they're going to a lawyer, they're feeling so, you know, emotional, so desperate. Uh, they don't really have the patience to, even if they could understand it, they don't really have the patience to go through all of that. They just want somebody to, you know, they're willing to sort of ignore that uh, for the promise of this person helping them. Yes, yes, that's true. And in California, one of the rules of ethics um, for lawyers on a contingency case is I have an attorney advertising continuing legal education course that I give to lawyers. And I've pointed this out to lawyers, which in some lawyers' eyes get really big, like I did not know that, is if you go to their website, it must tell you that the percentage is um, that they get no fee you know, that's, that's a contingency unless you win. But what about the costs? Do they get costs uh-huh. from you even if you don't win? They need to say that. They can't say it doesn't cost you anything unless they also tell you that yeah. includes the costs, that they're, they're going to eat the cost. Yeah. The lawyer's yeah. going to eat the costs if you don't win. You need to know that ahead of time because otherwise you could still lose a case and still owe the lawyer $10,000 for, 
for the cost of yes. expert witnesses or depositions, you know, the things that they, that lawyer pays out of the pocket. So it's, people need to be aware that it's not just the fee, but it's also the money that the lawyer has to spend to, to run your case. Who's going to pay for that if you don't win? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes, that is very important. And, and some of these things don't get, and if people don't know that, they don't know to ask these things. Um, right. What about, what about, let's talk about, I know you have, in your book, you talk about traits of a good lawyer, and then you talk about red flags. <laughs> I love red flags. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, um, it's, <laughs> they're, I, I always say that, um, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and um by now, I mean, I'm, I'm doing the case is easy. Uh, I do civil and criminal cases. And, uh, you know, it's doing the case itself. I know how to do that. <laughs> but dealing with the lawyer is another story. Um, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of um, uh, mentality as far as like, well, first of all, the main thing would be, well, this is one of the things, and people should know about this. You can, this might be a red flag, um, about how lawyers sometimes, especially if they are laying out the money, look for experts who will give them a flat fee instead of experts right. who give them an hourly fee because, um, because, you know, they want to know what the ultimate fee is going to be, which is understandable, but what they don't realize and what the client doesn't realize is that any expert, it doesn't have to just be a psychiatrist, but any expert who is on flat feet is going to just do that amount of hours <laughs> and, um, and not anymore because the more hours they put in, the less that makes it per hour. Um, right. And so they're going to do a very limited amount of work. And yet, you know, lawyer, so you kind of need to find, ask your lawyer about that too, you know, to need to be um, a, a player, take part in analyzing the CVs, the, the resumes of the experts and so on, not, not for, um, not just letting your lawyer pick somebody because, because it won't cost him a lot to lay out. Yes, and I think that's a red flag right, right, right there. If, if the lawyer is telling the client that, well, I'm going to find an expert for you, but, you know, it'll be just for a set amount of money. Like, the client should say, well, what if it takes them more than that amount of time? Then what? Right. What if they need more time to maybe interview the client or interview somebody? What if they need more time to gather more evidence or more facts? And and a lot of times, I think clients don't realize that an expert, and you know this, um, Dr. Carroll, that an expert's opinion is only as good as the information the expert receives. So if right. you don't get all the facts, right, then you can't, that your answer is going to be different depending on what the facts are. And, and this actually happened to me before I was an appellate specialist. I was a, a trial attorney and I was uh, representing the seller on, a, it was a real estate case, seller on this um, property and the buyers had sued the seller for all sorts of various things. But they're experts were not given the information, the accurate information, and they put the experts on the stand. And so there was two of us attorneys, the defense attorneys. I represented the sellers, and there was the uh, real estate broker's attorney. And we cut up this expert into pieces when we started asking them about the real facts and adding the additional facts. 
into hypotheticals. And, you know, no expert wants that to happen to them on the stand. Yes. So, right? I mean, that's a horrible thing to happen to an expert. Yes, and, um, yes. But if a lawyer's playing hide the ball with anything, they're going to play hide the ball with the expert. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and they think that, you know, they, they don't want to tell the expert things that they think will make the expert uh, think that they have a bad case. But the expert can always sort of work around it if they know what the truth is. I don't mean to lie, but I mean, you know, you can put things in a context. Like as a psychiatrist, for example, um, you know, if let's say, oh, I don't know, let's say it's um, a woman suing for um, wrongful termination. And um, the, and this is the, uh, this is the lawyer for her. And he doesn't want to tell you that she had a divorce right around the same time as she was fired and she had this problem and that problem because, you know, of course, the danger is that the other side is going to say uh, if, she's, if she has any psychological problems, it's because of all these other things that happened to her around the same time. So, but if the expert doesn't know that and they all of a sudden they are blindsided by this information, but if the expert does know it, then they can turn her into what's called um, an eggshell plaintiff, that yes, all these other horrible things happened to her, and that is why she was even more psychologically damaged, more, has more emotional distress damages, as they're called, um, when she was fired. Yes, exactly. And the same thing with a lawyer. It's the same concept that when a client comes in to a, a lawyer's office, oftentimes the client wants to tell them their side of the story because their side of the story sounds good, just as when a lawyer talks to an expert like you, and they only tell them the things that I want you to know, because that's my side of the story. But it, it's more helpful for the lawyer to hear what the other side of the story is. And often, in my well, office, what we ask clients is they, they tell us their side of the story, and then the next question we say is, tell me what the other guy's going to say, because they know. Yes. The client knows yes. what the other guy's going to say, and I need that information just as you, the expert, need that information because, like you say, you can frame everything. You're not going to be surprised because it's included in your assessment. And right, so right. if you're on the stand as an expert, a lawyer's not going to surprise you with the fact that you don't know. No, I considered that. You can, you can say, I considered that fact, and this is how that plays in, just as a lawyer can now factor in all the facts and then truly determine what kind of a case the client has. And so if a lawyer, you know, one of the things that I think is a red flag for lawyers is being too bravado about your case when they haven't looked at everything. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I've heard this, you know, when clients go in and they come out and go, my lawyer told me I have a great case. Like, they don't, they couldn't possibly yeah. know that yet. Yes, yes. And they say it because they want the client to go with them, you know, whereas if right. the client also interviews a lawyer who says, well, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> Instead of, oh, right. wow, what a great case. We're going to get a ton of money. <laughs> um, who are you going to go exactly. with? Exactly. You know? Yep. And, and but see, and that's another red flag. If the lawyer, just from your version of the story, reaches a conclusion that you've got this amazing case, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's another one? Um, another one is if you go into the <laughs> this is a, one of my favorites. If you go into the office of a lawyer and it appears really disorganized, 
um, that's a red flag. That means that things are falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Lawyers cannot afford to be Mm -hmm. disorganized. And their staff is a major part, the lawyer's staff is a major part of how they run their office and making sure that everything has to be scheduled. The lawyers operate on deadlines all the time. And, you know, if you see an office that's disorganized, stacks of files in places, I've been in offices like that, you could, does this lawyer really know what's going on in all these cases where they're just stacked on top of each other? And I'm not saying that that lawyer is a bad lawyer necessarily, but you need to ask about it. It's like when you see things that make you feel, oh, gee whiz, maybe this is kind of odd. I, you know, I thought lawyers' offices are supposed to be very organized, and it's not. Ask about it. It's just a red flag, meaning you should be asking about it. It doesn't mean you need to run out the office, but ask about it. Uh, another one is if you're in your conference with your first conference with your lawyer and they keep looking at their watch and they look like they're really in a hurry, they're not listening to you. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. a red flag. That means you need to stop your conversation and look this person in the eye and say, are you listening to me? Do you need to be someplace else? Is there something more important on your mind? Because it's my case right now. And uh-huh. ask those uh-huh. kinds of questions because, you know, when, um, when I became a lawyer, uh, I, I didn't go there straight away. I, I kind of went, took a curvy curvy little road to get to becoming a lawyer. And my mother, my um, adoptive mother was dying of cancer when I passed the bar. And I went to visit her, and she said to me, well, you finally did it. Good. Now, you are a lawyer, and you are there to serve people. And that has remained with me my entire career as a lawyer, that I'm there to serve my client. I provide a service. It's legal services. I'm there to counsel my clients, and I'm there to serve. So the client should be able to come in and say, I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to hire you to help me, to serve me. That's the attitude the client can have. And to be able to ask these forthright questions. Better to ask and find out now than to get an attorney and either spend money or go six months into a case and then find out you need a different lawyer because now you're going to start all over again. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. asking those questions, mm-hmm. not being intimidated. It is intimidating, right? I mean, when people, that's why I wrote yeah. the book, because when people go see lawyers, it's intimidating. Lawyers are really smart. And, you know, in fact, um, studies have shown that lawyers tend to score 15 to 30 points higher than the average in IQ. So, yes, lawyers are really smart. Uh, one of the things that I'm trying to teach lawyers now is to elevate their emotional intelligence because they tend to score 15 to 25% lower than the average in emotional intelligence in the assessments. And Mm -hmm. that's, so a lawyer could look like they're really cold. They could be super smart and get it, but it may not make the client feel like that they're caring for them because the emotional intelligence is lower than the IQ. Very interesting. I I would tell anybody listening, like, don't be intimidated. Ask the questions. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, now, so I'll, we are we have come to the end of the show. So let me ask you another question, which is, where would you like people to go to get your book? Oh, uh, they can go to. Um, actually, my book is available on Amazon. Just what every good lawyer wants mm-hmm. you to know uh, is the name of the book, and you know that's the easiest way for them to get a copy of my book. It's available on Kindle, Kindle, audio, and paperback. Oh, wow. You've got everything covered. Okay, and again, the title is What Every Good Lawyer 
wants you to know. And you have been hearing sort of some highlights, but there's a lot more to this book. I'm looking at the table of contents here, and there's a lot more to it. And if you, you know, have a case or even... You know, it's really best for people to read this even if they don't have a case yet so that they're prepared when they do. Or if a That's friend right. or a family member um, does, they can get, you can give them your advice or, you know, in terms of how, looking for these red flags and so on. Well, Francine, thank you so much. Francine Cohn, uh, thank you so much um, for being a guest and for sharing your story. And I love your, um, your Perry Mason story. <laughs> And your story of triumph over um, lots of adversities, which is an inspiration in itself. So thank you very much. And thank you all for thank listening. Thank you, Dr. Carol. Listening to Dr. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 